Good evening. It's good to see you tonight. Uh, as Brother Justin announced, we're going to be studying John chapter 16. And uh, as we've been going through this gospel of John, we've noted that John's gospel is quite different from Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Uh, and just as a reminder, we, we see certain events that John uh, accentuates or emphasizes that Matthew, Mark, and Luke don't necessarily put a lot of emphasis on. And the last few chapters have, have been just that, a very lengthy conversation that Jesus is having with his apostles before he goes to the cross. And I think understanding the mindset of these men as their leader, the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of God, has walked with them for years and they've been able to see him and touch him and visit with him and learn from him. And now he says, guys, I'm leaving. Understanding that mindset is somewhat difficult because we've, we've always walked by faith. We, we haven't physically seen Jesus' face or heard his voice or, or felt his touch or, or listened to his words of comfort, but they did. And now he's saying, that's going to be gone. And so as Jesus begins to outline some things for them to consider, after he tells them he's leaving, he makes this statement at the first of John 16, 1, where he says, These things have I spoken to you that you should not be made to stumble. So what is Jesus' purpose for all these things? Well, he tells us that right here. Guys, I've told you these things so that you don't stumble. You don't fall away. You don't be led into sin. And I just want to briefly for a moment think about what these things are. So remember, John chapter 13, Jesus says, they're going to take me, they're going to crucify me, they're going to put me to death. Peter says that's not going to happen. And Jesus begins to rebuke Peter and also to give them some words to think about so that they should not stumble. And the first thing we noticed the other evening and uh, from John 14, I said the other evening, it's been about four weeks, uh, Brother Justin talked on John 14 and verse 1, where Jesus starts this chapter by saying, don't let your heart be troubled. He knows that they are. He knows they're discouraged. He knows that they're concerned, that they're worried. And he says, don't let your heart be troubled. I have a reward for you. There's a reward coming. Offering them some encouragement and comfort. He says later, if you ask anything in my name, I will do it. Reassuring them that he's not going to leave them. He's going to be with them and bless them. He says to them, I will not leave you orphans, I will come to you. And that might seem like a bizarre statement to make, but understand he's speaking in figurative language here. They've relied on him as a father, as a guide, as a mentor, as a provider. And he says to them, I'm not going to leave you like orphans. I'm going to come again to you. And then reveals to them how that's going to happen. He's, he talks to them about how the, he and the Father will come to him and make our home with him. Speaking of those who followed him faithfully and kept his commandments. And then he tells them how that would be accomplished through the helper, the Holy Spirit. And that that spirit was going to come and it was going to remind them of everything he said. It was going to show them of things to come. We'll talk more about that this evening. And then he ends that chapter by saying, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Words of encouragement, words of comfort to remind them that they are not going to be left when he leaves. He goes on to talk about some things in John 15, and I realize we jumped through 16 verses, but we're, again, we're just kind of doing this thematically. Uh, he tells them, I didn't choose, uh, you didn't choose me, I chose you. That might seem like a strange statement, but think about that as Jesus is saying, I'm going to leave, you've got a job to do, you guys have got work to do, and don't forget, I chose you for this. 
You didn't choose to follow me. I chose you. And he has the power. He's the one that's going to guide. He's the one that's going to accomplish. So they need that reminder. And then he says, a servant's not greater than his master. And to not take this out of context, understand why he says this. Because he tells them, the world's going to hate you. And they're going to persecute you. If they hated me, they're going to hate you. You know, he wasn't just going to give them a bunch of information that gave them a false expectation. He wanted them to understand the hardships that were about to come and to understand why they were going to come. I'm your master, and I'm suffering, and they hate me, so just expect the same for you. And he tells them their job. So that's the things in synopsis that Jesus says, I've told you these things so that you do not stumble. And then he goes on to tell them something else that's going to happen. In verse 2 of John 16, he said, They will put you out of the synagogues. Yes, the time is coming that whoever kills you will think that he offers God's service. And these things they will do to you because they have not known the Father nor me. Now, we live in a world where we see violence sometimes happening in the name of some God or some deity. We, we, we recognize sometimes that radical Islamists may you know, perform some terroristic act in the name of Allah. And, and that they may, but, but think about this, he's talking about the Jews. And that's hard for us to imagine that God's chosen people, the Jews, would do something like this. Well, Jesus reveals to us that's because they're not really true God's chosen people. He said they haven't known the Father. They don't know the Father. They don't know me. And because of that, they're going to persecute you. And then he also says they're going to put you out of the synagogues. Now again, this may be hard for us to understand, but that is a huge, huge deal. These people have been to synagogue their entire life. And I want you to imagine that next week you walked in here and somebody met you at the door and said, you are no longer welcome here and nobody here wants you here ever again. I, that would hurt me. I don't know if that would hurt you, but that would hurt me greatly. That's what these people experienced. And I want to think about a thought that, that we read about in Hebrews. And, uh, you know, Toya brought this up to me a while back when the ladies were studying Hebrews. And it, it, it kind of, uh, I had to go back and look at it because I thought, what a bizarre statement to make. But, but when you think about what really happened to these guys when they had to uh, be ostracized from the Jewish circles, from their social group, from their friends, and, and, and really the society that they had grown up in in Jerusalem, it was bigger than just making new friends. Or having new people in their life. Hebrews chapter 13 verse 10. I apologize if you're at the back and that's a little bit small. It says we have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. Now recognize that the Hebrew writer is talking to Jewish Christians. And he is making some comparisons between the old and the new. And how the old is inferior to the new. And he says this about the priests. He says they don't even have a right to eat of the altar that we eat. Talking about Christ. And he says, for the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus, he says, also suffered outside the gate to order or in order to sanctify the people through his blood. Now, verse 13 is what I want us to think about. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek that city which is to come. Now maybe you're like me and reading that on the surface you go, that's rather bizarre. What in the world is he talking about? So I want to think about something for a moment. When they took a sacrifice under the Jewish law, they would collect the blood and they would present that in the holy place. But what did they do with the body? What did they do with the organs, the entrails? They took them outside the city, outside the gate, 
outside and they burned them. Why? Because all of those parts were considered unclean. Now, the clean parts were a sacrifice. The blood, the, the meat or the fat thereof, the animal was offered on the altar. But the unclean parts were taken outside and burned outside the camp. That's the analogy that he's making. So what does he say? Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. What's he saying? Jesus, just like the unclean part of the animal was taken outside of the gate, Jesus went outside the gate and guess what everybody viewed him as? Unclean. Think about that. These people are being put out of the synagogue. Why? Because they're being treated as unclean. The Jews hated four people. They hated Gentiles, Samaritans, publicans, and Christians. That's who they hated. And they viewed them all as distasteful, disgusting, abominable, and unclean. And now these people who've had family members who are Jews who didn't accept Christ, all these people are doing what? They're putting social pressure on them. You go back to Moses or you're dirty. You know what he said? Jesus was viewed as dirty when he walked outside the camp to atone for our sins. And that's where you need to go. Even if it means you're dirty, you go outside the city. You know why? Because this city's not our city. Jerusalem's not our city. We don't have a lasting city. We, we look for a city which is to come. And it's not this one. Don't have your loyalty to the people or to Judaism. And that's exactly what Jesus is telling these men is going to happen to them. You're going to be ostracized. You're going to be viewed as unclean. They're going to treat you as though you've done something wrong. And they're going to do things that are wrong thinking they're doing God's service. And we see that in the life of the Apostle Paul before he's converted. What did Paul say? Yeah, I persecuted the church. I compelled people to blaspheme. I gave my vote. I cast my vote against people. And they were put to death. And I thought I must do that for God. So they were confused. And Jesus gives us the reason why. You know what the reason why? He said, they're going to do these things because they don't know God. And they don't know me. But these things I've told you, that when the time comes, you may remember that I told you of them. And these things I did not say to you at the beginning because I was with you. But now I go away to him who sent me. And none of you ask me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. So the question might be, why is Jesus waiting till the end to tell them all these things? Why not tell them early on? Why is it now that he's leaving, he tells them all these things? And he answers that. He said, the reason I'm telling you this now is because I'm about to leave. I was with you before. I didn't need to tell you these things. I didn't need to discourage you or make you think about things that were to come. You know, that's using the own, his own wisdom that Jesus tells us when he says, don't be concerned about tomorrow. The, the evil that's in today, the trouble that's in today is sufficient. So why put their minds on something that is not going to happen for a long time? So he waits for the appropriate time to say, guys, I'm telling you this because this is real. I'm going away. I'm leaving you. And I know that because I've said these things to you, that you're sad. I know that I've filled your heart with sorrow by, by telling you all these things. He said, nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. I bet that was hard to believe. Hard to believe that it would be to their advantage if Jesus left and didn't come back. But he says, it's to your advantage that I go away. For if I don't go away, the helper will not come. But if I depart, I will send him to you. Now, I, I would say if you're walking with Jesus, talking to Jesus, enjoying his provisions, enjoying his blessings, and he says, it's better for you that I go away, I'm going, I don't think so. It didn't make life easier. It actually made it harder that Jesus left. But here's the thing. They were already working. 
It wasn't like these guys just followed around Jesus and then he left and said, okay, go to work. They'd been working. And now they're going to have power. Now they're going to have every advantage to do the job that they were commissioned to do. And you know what? After the resurrection of Jesus Christ, these men were emboldened. They were emboldened to go out and put their own lives at risk when, as Jesus was taken to be crucified, they scattered. Smite the shepherd and the, sh and the sheep will scatter. That's what happened. But after the resurrection, they're emboldened by that, not only because of the resurrection, but because of the power that God left them with when he did send the Spirit to give them the advantage that they needed. So Jesus says of the Spirit, and when he has come, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Of sin, because they do not believe in me. Of righteousness, because I go to my Father and you see me no more. Of judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. Now, you know, if, if verse 8 stood alone, I think this would be kind of easy to just go ahead and, and, and figure out what he's talking about. It complicates things a little bit more because he gives an explanation as, as to why. And, and remember, as he, what he's talking about here is that when the Spirit comes, the Spirit is going to do these things. The Spirit is going to convict the world of sin. And we see that as the job of the Spirit. That is a, that is a common theme in Scripture, that the, that the Spirit is the revealer. The Spirit makes things manifest. Uh, over and over you see that being the job of the Spirit. So he's going to make some things manifest. He's going to convince or convict the world of sin and of righteousness and judgment. Now, simply put, we see that in the preaching of the gospel. If you think about the time there in Acts chapter 24 as Paul is preaching to Felix, it says as he reasoned of righteousness and temperance and judgment to come. Temperance relating to those things of self-control and sin and of those things. So you can see that in a simple way, but Jesus says there's a reason why the Spirit's going to do this. And he says, of sin because they do not believe me, of righteousness because I go to my Father and you will see me no more, and of judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. And I feel somewhat inadequate to tell you probably what all that means. And so we're going to take a shot at it a little bit tonight and, and talk about this for a moment because we do see this... Uh, taught not only here, but also in some of the other teachings of John. And we're not going to go into detail on that, but we've been talking lately about the fact that blindness is something that was the topic of conversation in John 9 and also in, in our previous chapters we just looked at, where Jesus told them that their sin was related to their eyesight. And because they say, we see, he said, your sin remains. Pointing out to them that you've seen me do all these things, you've heard me teach all these things, and still you don't believe. But you brag about how you have knowledge and understanding. And because of that, it makes your guilt bigger. Because in truth, you're blind. You are blind. You don't see the truth. And Jesus notes here that the Spirit is going to convince the world or convict the world of sin because they do not believe me. Well, who's the world? Is he using that phrase to describe the entire world? He says the ruler of this world is judged. It's those that are of the world. In Zechariah chapter 12 and verse 10, a prophecy of Zechariah says, And I will pour out or pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will look on me whom they pierced. Yes, they will mourn for me as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. What's interesting to me is when the spirit begins his work, and, and not, not as though the Spirit hadn't been working, but I'm talking about in the apostles now. There in Acts chapter 2, as the Spirit is poured out, what does he do? He stands up in front of the people that didn't believe in Jesus, that rejected Jesus, that said crucify him, and what did he say? Him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, you have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. 
He convict, convicted them all of sin. Why? Because I'll tell you, every sin that occurs is rooted in unbelief. That's where it happens. Even for God's people, when we commit sin, it's a rejection of His sonship and His authority in our life. And we may believe that Jesus is the Son of God, but what do we think in those moments? I need more faith. I need to strengthen my faith. Because all sin ultimately stems from unbelief. Mark chapter 16 and verse 16, as we think about Jesus saying that the Spirit will come and He will, he will convict the world of righteousness. Why? Because He said, because I'm going away and you'll see me no more. In Mark 16 and verse 16, He who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned. And these signs, notice verse 17, and these signs will follow those who believe. In my name they will cast out demons, they will speak with new tongues, they will take up serpents, and if they drink anything deadly, it will by no means hurt them. Then will lay hands on the sick and they will recover. Now, this is not about today. It's not about today. This is not about people coming into church service and picking up snakes. They didn't do that, okay? That wasn't what this was about. This was about miraculous signs that would be accomplished by the apostles and prophets during the first century, and there was a specific purpose for this. It says, so then after the Lord had spoken to them, he was received up into heaven. He was going away. He went away. He sat down at the right hand of God, and they went out and preached everywhere. Look, the Lord working with them and confirming the word through the accompanying signs. What did the Spirit do when Jesus left? It confirmed everything that they said. These guys went in and they said, Jesus is God's Son and will prove it. And what they do? They perform miracles. Well, people connected that. They looked at that and they said, well, obviously, these men have God's approval. Whatever they're saying must be true because look at what they're able to do. Because those aren't normal things. They're not human things. They're supernatural things that only God could accomplish. And what does that mean? Jesus is who he said he was. That means he's vindicated. He's innocent. He's righteous. And righteousness, the door of righteousness is now open. And that was proven how? The Spirit. The Spirit doing the work that he did through the hands of the apostles confirmed the righteousness of God, the righteousness of Christ, and the righteousness that's through Jesus Christ. Finally, Jesus makes a connection about the Spirit convicting of judgment. And his explanation is because the ruler of the world has been cast out. So he connects that to the idea of the judgment that's going to happen on Satan. So I want to think about a couple things. In Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 14, here the Hebrew writer says, Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, and, and he doesn't mean that we've partaken of flesh and blood like we talk about partaking of the Lord's Supper. He means that we're made of flesh and blood. So it says of Jesus, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death. What he's saying is Jesus was made flesh and blood so he could die. And it says that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Jesus, that word there where it says destroy him, it means to render useless or idle. He's going to take Satan's power away. It doesn't mean he killed Satan. It doesn't mean Satan died. Satan is very much still alive and, and active in the world. But what it does mean is he rendered him useless in this way. What way was that? Well, before that, who had the power of death? The devil. What did Jesus say in Revelation? I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the first and last, and I have what? The keys of hell and of death. See, Satan held everybody in captivity. To what? To their fear of death. He held them in bondage. That's what he says. And what did Jesus do? Through his death, he delivered us. He delivered us. What does that word deliver mean? It means rescue. That's what it means, rescued. How did he do that? By judging the devil. By judging him. 
His judgment was set from the beginning of time. Jesus was always, has, was always intended to come and do this to the devil, to remove his power. And you know what that shows us? You know what it shows us when Jesus cast out the devils? He has authority. He has power. Jesus has the right. He is the judge. He is the righteous judge. And judgment has been proven. Because if God will judge the devil, he will judge iniquity. He will judge all iniquity. And the ultimate evidence of the judgment is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So we remove that from the equation sometimes. We think about Jesus saying, I'm going away, guys. I'm going away. Well, to do what? Well, to die. But that wasn't when he went away. He went away and he died, but he came back and he was there for 40 days. Then he went to the Father. Then he left them. Then he left them. There's a period of time that happens there before Jesus actually leaves. Okay, going back to the chapter, and we're going to move in and out of this a little bit, but we're going to try to stay pretty close uh, after these next few verses because there's, a, there's a, a conversation that's happening here. There's some things that are all connected, and I don't want to deviate from them. John chapter 16, verse 12 through 15, we're going, to, we're going to move around just a little bit right here. He says, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. Well, when did he say them? Well, remember, Jesus, after his resurrection, came and spent 40 days with his disciples talking to them about things pertaining to the kingdom of God. But right now, he says, look, I've got a lot to say to you, but right now, you can't bear them. And they couldn't because they didn't understand. He says, however, now notice, when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth. So not only did Jesus come back and say some things to them in those 40 days, but he's also saying, when I leave, the spirit's going to come, and he's going to guide you into all truth. I've held back some things from you right now. But when the Spirit comes, he's going to guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will tell you things to come. And then he tells us why. He will glorify me. For he will take of what is mine and declare it to you. So Jesus gives us the how, doesn't he? I have many things to say to you. How? The Spirit is going to take what is mine and declare it to you. And all things that the Father has are mine, therefore, said I, Said uh, I said, rather, I'm quoting King James up here, therefore I said that he will take of mine and declare it to you. So all three of the Godhead are working together in this process, and Jesus makes, uh, he tries to make that clear. So this statement right here in verse 13, you know a lot of people doubt that. A lot of people doubt that, that all truth has actually been revealed. They're looking for something else, relying on something else. But he told them, when the spirit of truth has come, he's going to guide you into all truth. You know, Peter says this very thing in 2 Peter chapter 1. He writing says, His divine power has granted to us all things. How did that happen? What does that mean, His divine power? That through miraculous revelation, God has provided, with us, provided for us, rather, given us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence. This sounds just like John 16. But what does he say? He's given us all things that pertain to life and godliness. You know, I hear people all the time saying, you know, there's no handbook for that. Or there's no, there's no, there's nothing, there's no guide for that. I hear people say that about parenting. I wish there was a Bible for parenting. There is. It's called the Bible. All things that pertain not just to godliness, but also unto life. People say, I wish, I wish there was some financial information in the Bible. There's lots of it. Lots of it. It's the guide for life. For everything in life. Not only to live this life and be successful, but also to live this life and be successful in our spiritual life and be close to God. Everything. It wasn't just about their comfort. It was about our equipping that God sent the Holy Spirit to guide these men into all truth so we could know all truth and be blessed by all truth. And I'm going to tell you something, friends. We need the truth. 
We need to be fed with the truth. We need the knowledge that leads us to have a successful life, a godly life, and we neglect it, and God's given it all to us. In fact, we see the same in Jude chapter 1. Or Jude, there's just one chapter in Jude. I guess it's not chapter 1, but Jude verse 3. He says, Beloved, though although, uh, beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you, look, to contend for the faith that was once delivered for all, or once for all delivered to the saints. There's not another faith. There's not another doctrine coming. There's not another book that's going to come. And we have people, you know, all the time that come and say, I got another revelation of Jesus Christ. No, you don't. There's not another revelation of Jesus Christ. Jesus picked the apostles to guide us into all truth, to know everything. There's just one faith, and it was once delivered for all. We don't need a new truth. We don't need something contemporary. We don't need to change the truth. The truth is the truth, and it was given as God intended it for it to be given. And you know what? People look at that and they say, well, is that really that big a deal? Is it really that big a deal? It's a big deal. Timothy was told, take heed to yourself and to the doctrine. Continue in them, for in doing this, you will save both yourself and those who hear you. You know what he said? You pay very close, strict attention to not only yourself, Timothy, but also to the doctrine. Why? Because people's salvation, not just theirs, but yours, relies on the doctrine, on the truth. It matters. It matters greatly. Okay, so let's dive into this conversation. This is going to go on through the rest of the chapter. So Jesus says to them, a little while, and you will not see me. And again, a little while, and you will see me, because I go to the Father. Well, just reading that, you go, I don't know what, don't, don't know what he means. Well, that's the exact same reaction that these men had. They had no idea what Jesus meant by this. So it says, then some of his disciples said among themselves, notice they said among themselves, they didn't say it to Jesus, they said it among themselves, what is this that he says to us, a little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me, and because I go to the Father. So, so they don't understand either one of those nuances. He's been telling them he's going to the Father over and over, but they don't get it. And so they're talking amongst themselves. They don't know what he means by this, and they certainly don't know what he means by this. So they said, therefore, what is this that he says a little while? We don't know what he is saying. Now, notice verse 19. Now Jesus knew that they desired to ask him. So they're talking to each other, but they're not saying this to Jesus. And I don't know why. Maybe they're embarrassed. You know, who knows? Maybe they don't want to look foolish. You know, sometimes that happens. But for whatever reason, they didn't ask Jesus. They're just talking amongst themselves, going, what, is he, what does he mean by this? And so Jesus knew. He knew they desired to ask him. And he said to them, are you acquiring among yourselves what I said? A little while, and you will not see me. And again, a little while, and you will see me. Most assuredly, I say to you, that you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. And you will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will be turned into joy. Well, that doesn't really help them, does it? He's getting there, but he's building up something bigger for them to think about. The world's going to be glad at whatever I mean by this a little while and you won't see me. They're going to rejoice, but you're not. You're going to be sorrowful. We just told him they were sorrowful because of what he told him. So maybe they're starting to pick up on it. But he goes on to say this. A woman, when she is in labor, has sorrow because her hour has come. But as soon as she has given birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. Well, he's just all over the place, isn't he? I mean, he's, he's talking about this. He's talking about that. They want to know about what he means by this. Well, he's getting there. But notice, he's talking in figurative language here. And so he says, therefore... You now have sorrow, but I will see you again, and your heart will rejoice, 
and your joy no one will take from you. So, in a little while, you won't see me. You won't see me, right? So you have sorrow. But I will see you again, and your heart will rejoice. And he just told him that. Well, then after a little while, you will see me. And your joy no one will take from you. And in that day, you will ask me nothing. Most assuredly, I say to you, whatever you ask in the Father, ask the Father in my name, he will give you. Until now, you've asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. So now he's dealing with that I'm going to the Father part. Because when he goes to the Father, they're not going to ask him anything any longer. What's going to happen? He's going to ask the Father. Instead of asking, from that point, uh, all that time, they were asking things of Jesus. But once Jesus leaves, who are they going to ask? They're going to ask the Father. And here's what Jesus said. Most assuredly, I say to you, whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give you. And until now, you've asked nothing in my name, but you will then. And they're still not getting it yet. But he says this. These things I've spoken to you in figurative language. But the time is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figurative language, but I will tell you plainly about the Father. So it's giving him all these different things to think about, about childbirth. Well, what does childbirth have to do with what he's talking about? Well, he's just simply saying there's a time of, of travail, a time of sorrow, and then there's a time of rejoicing. And you don't even think about the time of sorrow once the time of rejoicing comes. And those of you who are mothers have probably all experienced that. You go through hard labor, you go through pain, you go through sorrow. I, I didn't go through that, but I was with someone who went through that. And I'll tell you, once the baby's out, all that stuff that you just went through, it's really not what matters. It's the baby. It's the baby that's in your hands. It's the new life. And that's what he's trying to get to them. Is the, I, know you're, I know you're sorrowful right now, but there's going to come a time when you're going to be so full of joy that you're going to forget about the sorrow. You're going to forget about that. And no one's going to take that joy away from you. His disciples said to him, see, now you're speaking plainly and using no figurative speech. What was it that he said that cleared it up? Let's go back again. Now they're starting to understand what's going on. In that day you will ask in my name. And I do not say to you that I shall pray the Father for you. For the Father himself loves you. Because you have loved me. And have believed that I came forth from God. I came forth from the Father and have come into the world. Again, I leave the world and go to the Father. Now they get it. They want to know what he means by a little while and a little while. And I go to the Father. Well, here's what he's telling them. I came from the Father, and I'm going to leave the world, and I'm going to go back to the Father. <laughs> oh, that's what he means by I'm going to the Father. That's what he means. But notice what Jesus says here. This, this is great comfort for them. He says, in that day you will ask in my name. And you haven't done that yet. Remember he just said that. You haven't done that yet, but you will. And when you do, I do not say that to you that I shall pray the Father for you. So it, it, he's saying, look, it's not going to be like... You're going to ask in my name, and then I'm going to ask the Father. He said, the Father is going to hear you when you ask in my name. You know why? Because I'm not the only one that loves you. The Father loves you, and he loves you because you love me and because you've believed in me, and he's going to provide for you. I'm not going to leave you orphans. I'm going to, I'm going to send the helper. The Father is going to send the helper in my name, and then you're going to ask things in my name. And the Father's going to provide for you. He's going to give to you. And he said, I came forth from the Father and have come into the world. And again, I leave the, the world and go to the Father. And then they said, see, you're speaking plainly. We understand that. And now you're not using figures of speech. Now we are sure that you know all things and have no need that anyone should question you. By this we believe that you came forth from God. Now, that's peculiar. Why is it that Jesus explaining something to them first in figurative speech and now in plain speech, caused them to say, oh, now we know that you know all things. That's why I wanted to emphasize earlier, 
When they had that conversation about what does he mean by this? What is he saying? They didn't tell him that, but he knew it anyway. He knew it anyway. He knew what they were thinking. And they're going, he knows our thoughts. He knows what we're talking about over here. We didn't tell him this. He knows all things. We didn't even have to ask him. We didn't have to ask. But he knew. He knew anyway. And he answered us. And they said, by this we believe that you came forth from God. Jesus answered them, do you now believe? Imagine their excitement as they start understanding what Jesus is saying and they look at Jesus and they say, oh, now we believe, now we believe. And he says, do you? Do you actually? Do you believe? Indeed, the hour is coming, yes, has now come that you will be scattered, each to his own, and will leave me alone. And yet I'm not alone because the Father is with me. These things have I spoken to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. Jesus says to them, I'm not going to leave you. I'm not going to forsake you. I'm not going to leave you as orphans. We're going to come. We're going to make our home with you, but you're going to leave me. I know, I know you think you believe, but you're going to leave me. You're going to leave me all alone, but, I, but I'm not going to be alone because God's not going to leave me. The Father's not going to leave me. And he says, I'm trying to tell you these things so you don't stumble because it's fixing to get rough. It's about to get really, really hard. And I need you to remember these things. Not just when Jesus was taken to the cross, but when they went out and they took the Great Commission and they owned the Great Commission, they owned the responsibility of taking that commission, that message to the world. Life got hard. These guys, they didn't enjoy luxury and comfort. They slept outside. They had hard travels. They were hungry at times. They were persecuted at others. And every one of the apostles, according to history, died a horrible death for the sake of Jesus Christ. And I believe they took these words to heart. As they went out, they didn't quit, they didn't stumble, they didn't give up. They were comforted, they were encouraged. And friends, that's the message for us. We already walk by faith, but God has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness. He's given us his promises. He's empowered us to live this life toward the reward that's awaiting us in heaven. And I hope that tonight as we think about these things that we don't quit, we don't stumble, we don't get discouraged. Because God keeps his promises and he kept them to them and surely he will keep them to us. Friends, tonight we offer the invitation of Jesus Christ. If you're here tonight and you're not a child of God, just understand that God loves you. And he wants to connect with you. He wants to have a relationship with you. And if you're one of his children, he, he, he wants to reconnect with you. If maybe you've not been connected with him for some time. Or if you have a need from him, just like them, you can ask in Jesus' name. We can ask in Jesus' name. And we do. We do every time we pray. We say, in Jesus' name. Why do we say that? Because we understand who our mediator is. Friends, if you need the mediator tonight, if you need the Father, come have a seat as we stand and we sing.